Conversations in Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it hasn't been the best week for the White House in wake of the rollout on the online insurance marketplaces. Even with consultants working around the clock to fix the problems that have plagued the Federal Health Insurance Exchange, more problems still being uncovered. Uh, last week, the system went down again. This time, not the site itself, but the part of the system being handled by the phone company, Verizon. The problem was swiftly identified, but it's fueling the rhetoric from opponents of the health care law. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius was in the hot seat last week, coming before the House Committee overseeing the Affordable Care Act. She's increasingly coming under fire from the GOP. And a growing chorus from both sides of the aisle, considering the frustrations with the online marketplace, to extend that deadline for signing up beyond March 31st, uh, the point at which people would have to pay the penalty. And, and that's being called for really considering the problems with the front end of the rollout. There are also some uh, voices of reason with all the noise. Margaret, a Democratic a senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, said that a delay in the individual mandate would allow for the problems to be worked out. Meanwhile, but we know that tens of thousands of Americans have signed up for insurance or found they qualify for coverage under the Medicaid expansion. So important to remind folks, it is a massive of undertaking. This is just the beginning, and it looks like it's just going to take some time to work out all the bugs in the system. Our guest today is an expert in lean systems in healthcare based on Toyota's efficient manufacturing platform. Steven Spear is a professor at MIT and author of The High Velocity Edge. He's been examining how lean principles uh, could work to improve efficiencies in healthcare as well as contain costs. Lori Robertson from factcheck.org drops in with another misrepresented fact about health policy. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Steve Spear in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The fallout continues over the rollout of the online insurance marketplaces. Last week, another glitch was added to the problem-plagued rollout. Verizon, the phone company responsible for the link from the states as well as the federal exchanges for the ever-important data hub, that went down, shutting down the federal exchange for a while and hampering state exchanges relying on the link. While the administration still insists problems should be worked out, by November, Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius was being barraged with criticism, mostly from GOP circles. She appeared before the House Committee overseeing the health care law and insisted everything was being done to correct the problems besetting the online insurance marketplaces. Meanwhile, President Obama took the health care law's message to Boston last week in the state that passed the first mandate to carry insurance in the nation. The president speaking to positive impacts when an entire population carries health insurance coverage, as they are in Massachusetts, better overall public health. Meanwhile, Vermont's insurance exchanges are up and running, but that state has loftier goals. The state is on track to have a fully operational state health plan by 2017 as the first in the nation state-funded Medicare for All approach. Vermont has traditionally been at the forefront of providing coverage for all of its residents, especially those most vulnerable. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Stephen J. Spear, Ph.D., senior lecturer at 
the Sloan School of Management at MIT and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Dr. Spear has written numerous critically acclaimed books and articles on the application of lean systems to improve market success, including in healthcare. Among them, decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system and the high-velocity edge, as well as the award-winning Harvard Business Review article, Fixing Healthcare from the Inside. Dr. Spear earned his Master's in Engineering at MIT and his PhD in Business from Harvard. Dr. Spear, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, thanks for having me. Stephen, you're known as an expert in the lean systems created by Toyota back in the 1950s to capture the automobile market from the industry leaders like Ford and GM, and originally it was called just-in-time production, but Lean has allowed the young Japanese company to surpass the big three automakers in creating cars that were more affordable, but much higher in quality and reliability as well. It's a model that's been replicated in varying degrees of success in other industries. It's come late to healthcare. Can you tell us a little bit about the essential elements of Lean and uh, how you see it rolling out in the healthcare industry? When we go back to look at Toyota's experience in the late 1950s, when they actually first tried the U.S. market, they showed up with an abysmal car, and they were horribly inefficient in making it. But what happened is that from um, the late 1950s till the early 1960s, Toyota went from being one-eighth as productive as its competitors to equally productive. By the late 1960s, they were twice as productive. And when they came to the U.S. market in the 1970s, they were not only uh, twice as productive, but twice as productive making better product. And then it just snowballed in terms of speed of improvement at speed. So Toyota started to dramatically compress the time it took to refresh models in a, in a major way, uh, compressed dramatically the time it took to introduce new models, introduce uh, new brands like Lexus and Scion, and, and then um, introduce uh, new technology like that in the hybrid drive, You know, first in the Prius, but now across 21 different platforms. Stephen, you recently participated in a study conducted by the Institute for Health Technology Transformation uh, that was entitled Lean IT, Making Healthcare More Efficient, exploring the potential for lean principles to transform healthcare to be more cost-effective and more efficient. But the focus was on the need to apply a lean approach to health information systems as an essential starting point. So why is that the essential starting point? Why not at the bedside or in the lab? So what we see when we look at these folks climb from not very good to very good to mind-bogglingly great is we see that they, they have these very fast, highly compressed, relentless learning cycles. What's essential to any learning cycle is the ability to first know what you think is going to happen, detect the abnormality against what you thought was normal, what, was, what you predicted, and then quickly loop back and understand the source of that, that abnormality. So the great organizations not only have sound, well-designed, thoughtfully placed organizational structures, they have this overlay of incredibly robust dynamics for the purpose of control and improvement. So as far as IT goes, what you find in, in, in many organizations, and certainly healthcare, the workforce is mobile, uh, the, the, the work is highly varied, is that a lot of these organizations lack, in a sense, the nervous system to know what's going on currently, how what is going on differs from what's expected, and where resources need to be devoted both immediately and over the longer term to uh, build the robustness, the health, and the resiliency of the system. So why, why worry about the IT? 
simultaneously you're not also worrying about the dynamics, and the dynamics are informed by information. If you're not worrying about the dynamics, you're only going to get uh, part of the way towards the right answer. Stephen, you've compared the lean approach to the scientific method where workers are trained to see a problem, do a root cause analysis, try a solution, and incorporate that system into the new cycle. And it's easy enough to pull the cord on the assembly line to fix a problem as soon as it's discovered, but it's much harder to do it with healthcare workflow. I know we had uh, Dr. Peter Provenost on a while ago, and he was talking about being in London trying to teach the nurses to stop a world-renowned surgeon when they saw something was wrong, sort of the cultural problem that one runs into. So tell us, though, what you've learned from your earlier experiences about applying lean at health institutions, and what are the essential components of lean principles in health? Yes, what you described was the behavioral shift from not even recognizing that you're dealing with an abnormality to recognize that the abnormality is something which should trigger a meaningful response in terms of containment, correction, and mitigation to prevent recurrence. And so this reference you made to uh, Dr. Provenance gets back to the, the core behavioral issue of having to teach people that when they observe an abnormality, it's something to be uh, respected and respected through response. Now, for what it's worth, if you think about how clinicians are trained, they're trained to treat the biological system at the core of their work, the patient. So medical science has made huge advances in defining what normal is, you know, well beyond the 98.6 and 120 over 70. And also the scientists and technologists have made extraordinary advances in creating the monitoring systems. And so what we're talking about here in terms of building the resiliency, the robustness, the health of the organizations which are trying to build the resiliency the health of the patients at their core is to teach them also to get into this habit of defining normal for the purpose of detecting abnormal and then swarming on the abnormal both to contain it before it has an infectious spread-like experience but also to investigate the source of abnormal so you can treat it to prevent recurrence. Stephen, in your book, The High Velocity Edge, you talked about how certain market leaders, I think you referred to them as breathtakingly good before, said that high-velocity organizations have these certain characteristics that really set them apart from the competition um, and that those characteristics allow for this continuous improvement of the individual parts and the process as well, which is a complicated sentence for people to understand. So maybe you could uh, share with our listeners, again, thinking about healthcare. What are these high-velocity principles? Where do you see them working successfully in healthcare? So we have to keep coming back to this notion that success is rooted in the mechanics and the behaviors of learning and discovery, uh, with a very few and rare exceptions. The only thing we can do in terms of beating the competition is uh, figure out how to move faster than they do toward figuring out what the marketplace really wants, and in this case, what our patients really value and figuring out how to uh, deliver that value uh, more effectively, more efficiently than somebody else. So that's the basic concept. Now, if you think about what a clinician does day to day, they have a patient come in, the person shows up and says, I don't feel well. And uh, the clinician then says, all right, well, let's have a talk about that. What's your history? I'm going to do an examination. And all of that is to arrive at an understanding of the patient and determine what's normal, what's abnormal, so that the abnormalities which present as symptoms can be understood down to a diagnosed cause. The clinician then takes the next step of saying, well, now that I have some sense of what is causing your symptoms, my next step is to develop a treatment plan which by logic and experience and so on and so forth 
is likely to offset the causes or correct the causes so your symptoms will disappear, and that establishes uh, a prediction or a target of what the result of the treatment plan will be. Then the, the, the physician, the clinician, comes back and recycles and says, well, what was it about how I did the examination and, and the, the workup that um, got me to a result different than I predicted? And then so you get that second cycle of disciplined scientific thinking, starting with symptoms and trying to get towards cure. What you discover, there are these common themes, and the common themes are exactly leading to the behavior that well-disciplined, effective, efficient, skilled clinicians apply every day. We're speaking today with Stephen J. Spear, Ph.D., senior lecturer at the Sloan School of Management at MIT and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Dr. Spear has written numerous award-winning books and articles on the application of lean systems to improve market successes, including the Harvard Business Review article, Fixing Healthcare from the Inside. You know, Stephen, I wanted to uh, sort of probe you a little on, you've been, we've been talking a little bit about organizations and structures, but we also have a lot of primary care providers it's smaller practices that are listening in. And I wonder how lean has scaled down to those offices. You know, I think about the hospital situation, really bad things can happen that are pretty dramatic. But in primary care settings, things happen in a slow way, but they're really bad. Someone's not watching the hypertension. What do you see out there in the marketplaces in terms of lean that can be applied at a smaller organizational level? Actually, some of our most dramatic successes have been in that primary care ambulatory setting. And to give you some quick ones, when we first got it started in primary care, we've worked with one practice that took, um, and so they started with something simple, which was the, their annual flu shot clinic. Day one, they were inoculating, let's say, five, six patients an hour. By the second and third day, they were up to 30 patients an hour. And the joke was they had gotten so fast at um, uh, providing these inoculations that they really should have moved from their office outside and just had a drive-through <laughs> inoculation clinic. Uh, and this is in up in Revere, uh, north of Boston, mm-hmm. uh, in front of the beach. And it would have been a very, very scenic place. You know, mm-hmm. just stick your arm out the window, <laughs> then they hit you with the needle, and away you go, and you're done in, you know, 15, 20 seconds. And what they were able to do is take a situation where, for your first appointment, let's say you're a new patient, you might have to wait weeks or months. They got that down to days. And for a patient who's showing up for a follow-up is just not feeling well, wants to see a doctor, it, it, they took what was call and make an appointment, and you're going to wait hours or days. When you walked in, you signed in and immediately went to the exam room with the medical assistant as opposed to walk in, wait online, sign in, wait in the waiting area. So um, they added enormously to the capacity of their practice without adding any people. And it wasn't that they added capacity by working harder. They added capacity by having a much, much better sense of um, their processes and how to make them more robust and resilient, and at the same time reducing the overburden on staff. And and moving from primary care to specialty care, just for a moment, we did um, work with uh, an orthopedics practice at uh, Brigham Faulkner Hospital here in the Boston area. They were at this. We're going to declare what we think is necessary to get a patient uh, in and out of uh, the practice for examination purposes. We're going to be very attentive to what's going right and, in particular, what's going wrong. And then we'll incorporate what we've learned on on the next cycle. And they got into the winter, which they expect to be a high point in load because they're hitting the end of a session, and everyone's saying, my goodness, it's been so slow. You know, we're so surprised that we're not experiencing the seasonal surge in demand we normally do. And someone discovered they had handled 50% more patients that day than the comparable day the previous year. 
So to your question, does this work in primary care and ambulance? Absolutely. And, and again, it gets back to the basic premise here. Exceptionalism comes from exceptional pace and discipline in learning cycles. Well, Stephen, the other big sea change that's going on, obviously, uh, live is the enrollment phase of the Affordable Care Act. That certainly holds the promise to address one of our healthcare system's most glaring problems, which is the inability of tens of millions of people to afford health insurance and have coverage. I'm curious, uh, as you think about the Affordable Care Act, what aspects best reflect your ideas of applying lean principles to improving not only the cost of care, but the quality of care as well? The Affordable Care Act, at least as it's espoused, is a means to provide people without resources the resources to access care. And the, the notion that we have a society in which more people rather than fewer can access health care, we have to agree, is, is the moral, ethical right thing. What we have currently with health care are providers where um, the value generated relative to the resources consumed is really poor. Everyone who's listening to this is either listening, you know, um, looking at a nice radio, they got, they're listening perhaps through a computer, phone, whatever else. And in all of those devices, we have the regular experience that if the thing we buy today, we probably pay no more today than we did for the previous version. But the thing we buy today has way more functionality um, and a much lower, uh, way more functionality, much greater availability than the thing we bought two, three, four, five years ago, and it may be the same price or less. And that, that experience we have with electronics and consumer devices is true with industrial devices, it's true with transportation, it's true with food, it's true with lodging, entertainment. So we have this problem in healthcare where, unlike every other sector, innovation doesn't improve quality, improve availability while still driving down unit cost. So, uh, you know, how does this tie into the um, Affordable Care Act? We still have this basic problem that the folks who provide care have to do better in terms of managing the delivery of care than they have historically in terms of engaging this learning dynamo so that not only are they providing more care to more people because they're getting paid more in an aggregate sense, but they're providing more affordable care to more people of higher quality because they've got this learning dynamo going, which Whatever they're doing today informs tomorrow how to do what they're doing better. You know, you've talked a, a lot about uh, how change happens in an organizational structure, and it clearly requires the, the leadership of uh, chief medical officer, chief executive officer. I, but, you know, I was also thinking, you know, we, we've been engaged in, in uh, using Dartmouth's clinical microsystems and GE's change acceleration process, and we, we also understand that you need the frontline people engaged if you're going to really get meaningful change. So there's a lot of nuance in this. Talk to us about it from the organizational level, both from the top uh, right down to the front line of uh, what that system needs to be a vibrant, learning, renewing system. Yeah, there's no substitute for the senior leader setting the tone as to what the behaviors and the values of the organization are. So at the end of the day, the senior leader says, how many patients do we treat today? The answer will be a number. On the other hand, if at the end of the day the senior leader says, how many patients did we treat today? And in the course of treating them, what got in your way? And if the senior leader expounds upon that, that question of what got in your way and says, well, the things that got in your way, why do you think they got in your way? And do you need help investigating, examining, diagnosing as to why they got in your way? That changes the conversation even further. What got in your way? Why did it get in your way? What can we do differently tomorrow? And how can I be helpful to bring those changes into place? That creates a much different dynamic than how many patients did we do, 
deal with today? How many people did we treat today? Encourages you towards driving towards more and more numbers, not necessarily good or bad experiences. The second one encourages you to celebrate the successes, but be thoughtful about the obstacles and difficulties to trigger that self-reflective, self-corrective learning cycle. It can't be senior leader alone um, because that question of what got in your way can only be answered by those who are doing the direct work of the organization Mm -hmm. because it's in their way that the obstacles got. The folks working on the front line are are the nervous endings of the organization saying, ooh, it's hot here, ooh, that was sharp, oh, that was painful. And it has to travel up the nervous system for the senior leaders to help encourage the sensing. But then it's the senior leaders who can actually authorize and enable the actuation uh, against that that, that sensing and that that synthesis. In fact, there's top-down and bottom-up occurring simultaneously Mm -hmm. because what's occurring top-down what's occurring bottom-up, both are necessary, neither are sufficient. Stephen, we're very passionate uh, in our organization about training the next generation of people who will deliver care, organize care, and it's a pretty uh, accurate statement to say that we're focused on training them to a high-performance model of healthcare and primary care, and we find ourselves really starting at ground zero in training people in the techniques and methods and and schooling, if you will, of quality improvement, of lean, and of, of other techniques. What are your thoughts about the best ways at which to train people in, in some of this area that we've been discussing today? It strikes me that both engineers and, and clinicians had a similar starting point, which was there was science and technology which was being developed within a profession, and that in order to be competent as a professional, you had to master the, the uh, science and technology within your field. But at some point there was this tipping where even if you were exceptional within your profession, that wasn't sufficient to get to good results. And and the simple reason was that good results depended on the choreographed, synchronized contribution of many professionals across many disciplines towards some common purpose. I mean, cars, for example, which once were purely iron, steel, plastic, mechanical devices, now the the, the iron, steel, mechanical is is a mere fraction of the total value out of the car, it was a long time ago that the electronics became the majority value add on the car, and now you could probably make an argument that the software um, controls actually supersede the electronics would supersede the mechanics in terms of um, the total value of the product. What, what happened in engineering is that from very early on, engineers are trained very deeply within their particular discipline. But even at the undergraduate level, engineers get projects which are um, cross-disciplinary and there's a socialization for an engineer to understand that the expression of their professional potential is in service to the larger system they're trying to design or the larger system they're trying to operate. And that the better and better they get, the larger the system in which they can make a contribution. Healthcare, my observation experience and the narratives my healthcare professionals share is that they're trained within their discipline, but they're rarely trained either for the socialization piece or the professional expression piece to understand that their potential is expressed in service to a system much larger than themselves. So there's still this, what is now a wildly outdated cliche of these other healthcare professions somehow orbiting around the physician as opposed to the physician being a highly skilled professional who's working in service to a system uh, much larger than himself or herself. When we educate our healthcare professionals 
we should really be cognizant of their success as professionals will be as part of teams much, much larger than themselves. We should start training them early on on how to be part of a system and not train them and get them to somehow expect that they are still these independent, soul-standing professionals, as may have been the case 30 and 40 years ago. We've been speaking today with Stephen J. Spear, Ph.D., senior lecturer at the Sloan School of Management at MIT and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You can access the recent report, Lean IT, Making Healthcare More Efficient, at iHealthTran.com. Com. And you can find out more about Stephen Spears' work by visiting his blog, The High Velocity Edge. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us at Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, you're quite welcome, and thank you so much for the invitation. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, several readers have asked us whether the Affordable Care Act restricts insurance coverage of mammography. The answer is no. In fact, the law requires insurers to cover mammograms without any cost sharing every one to two years for women starting at age 40. For women with Medicare, the law increased coverage. Medicare now fully pays for yearly mammograms starting at age 40. Despite what some of our readers may have heard, there is no cutoff or upper age limit for mammograms to be covered through Medicare. We called the American Cancer Society, the nonprofit Medicare Rights Center, and the American Geriatric Society, and none had heard of any issues or complaints of seniors being denied mammograms. So where does this false rumor come from? At least some of the claims are misinterpretations of 2009 recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. The task force is a volunteer panel of primary care physicians and preventive medicine experts. They made the controversial recommendation that biennial mammography screening should begin at age 50. For women younger than 50, the panel said the decision to have a mammogram was an individual choice. For women 75 and older, the panel said evidence wasn't available to determine benefits versus harms. The panel did not say that women under 50 or over 50 shouldn't get mammograms at all. The 2009 recommendations were rejected by some cancer groups, and they were specifically rejected by the Affordable Care Act, which, again, requires full coverage of mammograms as a standard preventive benefit starting at age 40. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Smoking bans across the country have yielded countless health benefits in myriad ways, reducing smoking-related illness and death. And while smoking in most buildings and public establishments has been banned across the country for years, it's still a ubiquitous practice in most of the nation's casinos, subjecting employees and patrons of these establishments to prolonged secondhand smoke exposure. 
The state of Colorado recently passed a ban on smoking in the state's casinos, and the results have been dramatic. Once smoking was banned, the number of emergency ambulance calls dropped by 20 percent. Dr. Stanton Glantz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California at San Francisco, says it's really a pretty simple equation. Long-term exposure to secondhand smoke increases the risk of the development of blood clots that can block arteries, causing an attack. And even a few minutes of secondhand smoke exposure is enough to make your blood platelets get stickier. And when that happens, they stick together and they are more likely to form a blood clot. And if that blood clot lodges in an artery in your heart, it causes a heart attack. And also the sticky platelets tear up the lining of the arteries. So you could have people who never smoked in their life but had a bad family history or were at an increased risk of heart attack who walked into a smoky casino and the, the, the short-term exposure in that casino or any other smoky environment could actually trigger a heart attack. Exposure to cigarette smoke can also trigger other adverse events like stroke, asthma attacks, and COPD flare-ups. The American Heart Association has applauded the first-of-its-kind study supporting the smoking ban in casinos and hopes that operators of casinos around the country take note. The, the clear implication of this work is continuing to permit smoking in casinos and other environments, for that matter, is sending people to the hospital. And it's not doing it next month or next year or five years from now. It's doing it right now. And a 20% change in, in the number of ambulance calls, you know, I mean, that's very substantial. A smoking ban in casinos populated by thousands of people, eliminating secondhand smoke exposure to those people, and significantly reducing smoking-related medical emergencies? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.